0: Amen. Thank you, worship team. It's so good to be together. I love Tuesdays and Thursdays. For a half hour, we can stop and re- be reminded of the story we're meant to live in. Uh, would you just turn to your neighbor and say, Neighbor? Uh, really, really talk to him. Say, Neighbor? Two and a half days till fall break. Turn turn to your other neighbor, your other neighbor right behind you, and say, Neighbor? You look like you need a break. <laughs> All right, have a seat, have a seat. Man, uh, you guys kind of, I should never have done that. You guys, we almost lost control. Uh, my name's Kent. And uh, it's such a privilege to worship with you all. Uh, I just uh, sometimes come and sing and don't really pay attention to the words. But the words this morning were powerful to my soul. So once again, thank you for leading us. Sometimes we take for granted what they do. Um, I want to pray and then uh, Beck is going to come and uh, share God's word with us this morning. So let's go to the Lord. Father, first of all, we uh, pause this morning and ask you to be with our friend, colleague, Professor Mike Sardinia, who suffered a blood clot in his brain. And Lord, it was touch and go yesterday. We prayed and we wondered and we grieved. Thank you for the good news that Mike moved his foot this morning. He's recovering from surgery. Please continue to be with the doctors, the neurologists, as they monitor him and work with him. And Lord... Come on, we're just human here. So, Lord, bring him back to us. Uh, Healed, fully healed, we pray. We need him still in our lives. Lord, be with several that I know even in this room who have lost loved ones and are grieving their loss. Comfort them in their sadness and their grief, we pray. Lord, you multiplied five loaves and two fish, To a crowd of 5,000. The disciples were filled with fear and doubt, and they said, Send the people away. I mean, where are we going to find food for this many? This would like take eight months' wages to buy enough food to feed these people. But you poured out your love and your compassion on that migrant crowd, welcoming them as brothers and sisters and we pray for this caravan of migrants that are marching through southern Mexico, some 7,000, over 7,000, from Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala, El Salvador. We ask you to be with them. We're marching to escape oppression, poverty, persecution, violence, and war. God, um, no one is a stranger to you. You watch over each of us with your loving gaze, May those people fleeing from their homes in search of refuge be reminded that your own son, Jesus and Mary and Joseph as mom and dad also experienced life as migrants. And may they be renewed in their faith as they walk and in their hope, guide political leaders to act generously and work towards lasting and meaningful peace in those areas affected by such violence and conflict. And help us by your grace to banish fear from our hearts that we may be uh, be able to embrace each of your children as our own brother and sister. And to welcome those that are different from us with joy and generosity and to share of our abundance as you spread a banquet out before us, God. And also, Lord, be with Beck as he brings your word to us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Just can't.
1: Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. Well, we're continuing our series this semester, thinking about how we redefine righteousness through the Gospel of Matthew, how we use the concepts of righteousness that Jesus teaches us to form right relationships with God and right relationships with one another. And this morning, our topic is sin. Redefining sin. I want you to notice that the president gets sin. Next week, the forest will get grace. That's how it works around here. That's how it works. Now, I'm excited to, to, uh, to talk with you about this. So I grew up in uh, the Southern Baptist Church. And sin was always on our minds growing up. You see, the Southern Baptist tradition is a pietistic tradition. And for those of us who wanted to be reminded and live into our hope to live with piety, needed to know what sin was. And so I can remember sin was top of mind for us growing up in that church. Every sermon I can remember hearing as a young boy ended with a vivid reminder of my own sin and also an important reminder of the salvation offered through Jesus Christ. Sometimes I walked away from those sermons comforted and gratified and affirmed. Sometimes I walked away from those sermons scared and a little bit unsure. It was common to have altar calls at the end of all of our sermons in the Southern Baptist Church. The preacher would exhort those who had not yet made a decision for Christ to walk the aisle publicly, come down front and testify to becoming a believer in Jesus, or perhaps to remind those of us who are already Christians that we too could come down and rededicate our lives. I think I might have set a personal record for the number of times I walked down the aisle to rededicate my life as a youngster. As a grown man, I can simultaneously appreciate the solid foundation that my religious upbringing gave me as it relates to understanding sin and the ways that that approach sometimes failed to teach me about other aspects of a sincere faith, like understanding less personal and more corporate expressions of sin or like understanding God's sovereignty and grace or living a life of liberation or understanding the freedom that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. But friends, hear me when I say this, we cannot fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ unless we have a good and clear understanding of sin. Sin in our own lives, sin in our world, sin in our institutions and in our systems. And actually, it's quite simple. Without sin, there would be no separation between God and us. There would be nothing standing in the way of right relationships with each other. Nothing preventing our systems and institutions from delivering just and equitable outcomes for all people. Without sin, there would be no need for a savior. Without sin, there would be no need for a suffering Jesus. So a theology without sin and its consequences is really no theology at all and a faith without acknowledging the role of sin in our lives, well, that's an empty faith. Our culture isn't very good about talking about sin. Sin is one of those words that signals its user as one who takes religion maybe just a little too seriously. Sin isn't mentioned in polite circles. And it's certainly not a part of reasoned and learned discourse. Sin is passé and ignorant. It's moralistic and judgmental. Sin is rigid and unenlightened. Sin holds people to account in a culture, well, that wants to be held unaccountable. Sin presumes transcendent truth in a world where all truth is relative. Yet sin is so central to the Christian narrative. It is so central that to skip it or to misunderstand it is akin to stripping the gospel of Christ of all of its meaning and its context. Now, Jesus has already addressed sin in our series of Redefining Righteousness. Several weeks ago, Forrest preached from Matthew chapter 5. Forrest reminded us then that Jesus is more concerned with the spirit of the law than its letter. That to have a lustful heart, for example, is equivalent to committing an adulterous act. Or that to harbor misplaced hatred is the same as murder. Or that uh, in that Sermon uh, on the Mount, Jesus reminds us that sin runs deeper, much, much deeper than our actions. Sin takes root and finds life in our hearts. Craig Barnes, who's the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, in his book on the Heidelberg Catechism says this about sin. To sin is not just to do something wrong. It is to surrender to a power that pulls us from God. Harboring lust, you see, surrenders to a power that would demean another and reduce another human being to simply a sexual object. Harboring misplaced anger succumbs to another power, a power that keeps us from healthy and meaningful human connection with one another. Matters of the heart are always at the root of sin, Jesus teaches us. And so that brings us to our passage for today. From Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to read verses 6 through 9. I'm going to read the NRSV version. I'll read another version a little bit later, but Aiden, if you could pull that up. If any of you put a stumbling block... This is Jesus speaking. Put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. These are strong words from Jesus. He's not mixing words here. He's pretty serious about sin. But what kind of sin is Jesus speaking of here? Once again, I would ask you to consider this morning that Jesus is centering his concern on matters of the heart. Now, follow me on this. What is the context for this stark lesson on sin? Let's back up just a bit in the text. What's prompting this sobering reminder about sin? Well, just before this passage, in Matthew chapter 17, and verse 22, Jesus tries to explain to his disciples that he will be betrayed and killed. There's nothing more intimate, nothing more profound than Jesus can be sharing with his disciples. He will be betrayed and killed. So what is their next concern? Well, we open up Matthew 18, almost as if it's the same conversation. The disciples get into an argument about whom among them is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is not the first time they do this. The disciples are preoccupied. They are infatuated with power and privilege, with whatever rank they're going to hold when Jesus finally follows through with his promises. I mean, can you imagine Jesus says to them, I'm about to die a gruesome death for you. The disciples reply, yeah, great Jesus, but who among us humans is the greatest? It's odd. So I'm going to read the text just before the scripture we just read about millstones and gouging eyes out. This is Matthew 18, just the first five verses. Hang with me here. At at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a child whom he put among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Then he goes on to say, if any of you puts a stumbling block and so forth. So that's the context of this sermon Of Jesus on sin. Jesus is talking about sin, yes, but he's doing so in the context of addressing important matters of the heart of his followers. And in order to illustrate the point, Jesus does something really interesting here. He invites a child to come into his presence. I imagine Jesus putting this child on his lap as he's instructing his disciples. Why use a child for this lesson? Well, I think it's because of this. When you're about to draw a distinction between pride and humility, what better illustration could you use? Jesus uses the image of a child as an example of true greatness. Remember, children were not revered in the ancient world like they are today. Women and children were seen as little more than property then. So to pull a child into their midst would have been culture-shaking. Yet Jesus elevates this child in his lap as an exemplar of faith, a testament to humility. You see, an unspoiled child embodies all the makings of humility, if you think about it, unquestioned trust, a sweet dependence, the desire to make other people happy, and the absence of boasting, and the absence of selfishness. The disciples want to know who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus warns them that apart from humility, the kind of humility that they would find in a child, they could not even enter the kingdom of heaven. Folks, that rocks our world today. That should be rocking our world, Jesus' words here. I want to read Matthew eighteen six through 9 from the message. I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. One, Eugene Peterson died yesterday. We celebrate his life. But the message, I think, captures this really, really well. But if you give them a hard time, these children bullying or taking advantage of their simple trust, you'll soon wish you hadn't. You'd, better, you'd be better off dropped in the middle of a lake with a millstone around your neck. Doom the world for giving these God-believing children a hard time. Hard times are inevitable, but you don't have to make it worse. And it's doomsday to you if you do. If your hand or your foot gets in the way of God, chop it off and throw it away. You're better off maimed or lame and alive than the proud owners of two hands and two feet. Godless in a furnace of eternal fire. And if your eye distracts you from God, pull it out and throw it away. You're better off one-eyed and alive than exercising your 2020 vision from inside the fire of hell. God bless Eugene Peterson. You see, this is all about matters of the heart. The heart condition he's speaking of, his lesson to us today is about pride. Can we all agree that pride is the root of so much of our sin? It is the pride that comes with knowledge that tempts us in the garden. It is the pride that comes from power that causes us to put others in their place. It is the pride that comes from discernment that tempts us to claim that our own understanding surpasses and supplants the teachings of Scripture. It is the pride that comes from an illusion of control that causes us to be slow to surrender our lives to Jesus. That power that pulls us from God, as Craig Barnes said, is so often pride. It's pride that Jesus is talking about here. Pride in self, pride in our own understanding, pride in our supposedly mature and wise faith that might cause us to look down on someone with a more humble faith, a more simplistic faith, like the faith of a child? How many times in church circles are, th- are those with arguably more simplistic understandings of righteousness and sin, how many times are they looked down upon as uneducated and less culturally and biblically aware? We do this well in academic circles too. Unless someone has an academic faith, one shaped and influenced by the latest theological or hermeneutical lenses, then, we, as we may say in the South, we'll bless their hearts. <laughs> well, that's what Jesus is saying. Bless their hearts. Bless their hearts. Their heart is in the right place. A place of humility, not pride. And woe to those, danger to those who would allow their own pride, prideful faith to cause The humble in faith to stumble. Worship team, come on back up up here. To enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus doesn't point to the most learned scholar. He could have, as the example. No, he draws our attention to a little child whose faith doesn't allow for prideful boasting or arrogant concerns. Friends, are we humble in our faith? Are our hearts oriented towards humility? towards dependence, towards trust? Or are we prideful in our faith, eager to find our place in Jesus' all-star list of heaven seekers and quick to put down others for their less sophisticated beliefs? Jesus loves the humble and meek in spirit, he tells us. For there, uh, and he reminds us that pride can cause us to miss the mark completely. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, worship team. Um, As Kent said, we've got two days till fall break. I know that a lot will happen in the next two days for you all to enjoy that time. Whatever fall break means for you, I know some of you are traveling, some of you are visiting friends and family, some of you have responsibilities here on campus. But whatever fall break means for you, I hope that it will be full of joy and rest and whatever you need to get through the second half of the semester. I will be praying for you. Go with this assurance that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is yours now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.